Good morning, brothers and sisters. We've got half the group wants to talk and fellowship, and the other half still sleeping after a year of no Sunday school. What a, what a blessing to be back together for, for 9 a.m. It's uh, wonderful to see the young people enthusiastic to resume their studies as well. So let's begin with uh, prayer and ask for the Holy Spirit to minister through the teaching of his word at uh, all the various age levels that are a part of Pacific Hope this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you. We are grateful for your presence in our lives. Lord God, we are grateful for the eternality of your word and for the way in which it ministers to us unto our salvation and for your glory. God, we just thank you that as a church family, we're able to again congregate um, freely and to have uh, young people and and ourselves as well um, gathered together to examine your word. We just pray that your word would have its work transforming our lives and that we would be prepared also uh, for the hour of worship and again uh, being brought your word. We just ask that this time would be um, sweet and nourishing to us as well as honoring and praiseworthy to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Excited to begin a uh, new eight-week series studying the book of Amos. As you came in, uh, George and Anne shared with you a, uh, a little cheat tool. Figure over the course of eight weeks, we'll save at least 20 minutes of thumbing aimlessly through the Old Testament trying to find Amos. So this will make it easy. You can find Amos, and uh, it's a, hopefully a good um, resource for each of you as you take notes and write in the margins. There's a generous amount of margins for you to be able to, to keep track of the things that we learn as we explore the minor prophet Amos. The uh, title of the series will be A Minor Prophet with Major Relevance, and we're looking at ways in which this Old Testament prophet can speak truth into, into our lives today in 2021. Just a quick note of really why we uh, decided to study this particular book. And I'll just give you a, a couple of a quick reasons and then we'll do a read-through of uh, the first few verses of the book of Amos. So, first of all, the book of Amos reveals to us God's immutable and his unchanging nature. I've heard many believers say to me, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, versus the God of the New Testament. And we know that this is, this is a misinformation. And so we want to be brought into the reality that God is unchanging. There's no divider in terms of God's nature from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We understand things in a different reality because of the new covenant, because of the, the advent of Jesus Christ and his finished work. But the, the nature of who God is, is unchanged. The realities of how he established covenant with his people is something that allows us to understand his unchanging character. The second reason that I tell you that it's worthwhile for us to study the book of Amos is because the in-depth knowledge of his, the historical redemptive narrative helps us better navigate today. There are things about what God has done from Genesis through the coming of Christ that are essential for us to understand the work and the life of Jesus Christ. Having that, that understanding of the history of how God interacted with his people is key for us. 
We've been blessed through two years of being taught through three years, perhaps, through First and, and Second Corinthians and exploring how the gospel has been brought to us through the Apostle Paul. And we are so blessed to be in a church that has a, a well-balanced spiritual diet of Old Testament and New Testament. We're now, again, back into the, the book of Joshua today after Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and we're blessed as a, as a body of believers to have a, a well-balanced diet. Some might say that uh, books like Amos are the Brussels sprouts of the Christian diet, right? Nobody gets really excited about Brussels sprouts, right? But it's there for our nourishment and for us to be built up. And so over the course of the next eight weeks, we'll be diving into this um, rich text that will help us understand God's unchanging character and how it all points to Christ. Of course, we understand and we see, as Christ explained on the Emmaus Road, that all scripture has Christ as its author. Not only does it point to Christ, but it, it has its origin in Christ. And so as we go through this text, I'll warn you in advance, there are moments where it will feel a bit like Brussels sprouts. In fact, one of my commentaries that uh, I'm using in, to prepare this is, remember to point to Christ because there's a lot of the book of Amos that feels a bit like a downer. And we need the, the joy and the refreshment that comes through a, a new look at Christ, at our good news. Otherwise, it'll feel a bit like nine chapters of bad news. So I'm warning you about that up front. And my challenge as, uh, as I bring this text to you is to allow us to have applications that will bring us anew to the joy that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why we're looking a bit at Amos. Now, a couple of things about Amos that we should know contextually. First, if you would turn in your, uh, either in your Bible or in your um, new little notebook here, We'll do the first couple of verses of Amos. We have nine chapters to cover in eight weeks, and today we're going to tackle two verses. So hopefully uh, the pace will change as we go. <clears throat> Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Some uniquenesses about the, the book of Amos. Amos was a shepherd. The Bible tells us he was also a fig dresser. So he was not a, a prophet of great spiritual pedigree. He was called from obscurity and charged with giving a message. He was charged with giving a message to the northern kingdom of Israel. If we look at Tekoa, Tekoa is part of the southern kingdom and not very far from where Bethlehem would have been. And Amos is called out of this obscurity and told to direct a message to the northern kingdom. Now, there's a lot that we're going to unpack today to look at the historical context. But the first thing I'll tell you is that the northern and the southern kingdoms are now divided. There's animosity between these two kingdoms. The kings that are mentioned as uh, kind of temporal markers in this are Uzziah, who's the king of Judah, and Jeroboam II, who's the king of Israel. Well, Jeroboam II's father had not terribly, uh, in, the, in the time frame that ha this has happened, did a little bit of a plundering mission and actually looted Judah and took certain things out of the temple to go 
and use those to set up a counterfeit or a, a secondary place of worship that did not honor God in places like Gilgal and like Carmel and like Samaria and like Bethel. So we have some animosity between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and now this man from Judah, Amos, is sent to deliver a prophetic message to the northern kingdom. As far as Amos goes, very little is told to us through God's word about him specifically. Nonetheless, we have a little bit more of a glimpse of who he was because of something that we find in Amos chapter 7. So we'll tackle this chapter in depth later, but just for our own knowledge as we begin this study, if you would turn, please, to Amos chapter 7, verse 14 and 15. We find a dialogue between Amos and a false prophet who's been commissioned by Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. And in this dialogue, Amos says to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. So we have this, this shepherd, this dresser of sycamore figs, all of that that entails, we can explore when we get to the chapter 7 perhaps. But what we do know is that he was pulled from obscurity and given by God a divine calling and a message. That pattern of pulling shepherds from obscurity, of course, we may have noticed with King David. And throughout God's redemptive historical plan, we see people called from relative obscurity, Abraham from Ur. Mark and I were talking about Ur yesterday. God has pulled these people out of obscurity to be used for his purposes, to declare his glory, and to declare his holy, righteous character. So that's what Amos is doing. He's a shepherd, he's a fig, uh, dresser of fig trees, and he goes out from Tekoa, and he goes and he delivers a message to the northern kingdom. And what you'll see, particularly in the, the first chapters of Amos that we tackled together, he's given a role much like a, a prosecuting lawyer. He brings covenant charges against all of the nations that surround Israel, against Israel, and even against Judah. This is very important because we often have this idea that, that as we look through the minor prophets, we see some sort of a, a manifesto for a, a Zionist state or some sort of way in which we see Israel as being set apart and special. But what we see here in the book of Amos is an equal playing field. God's wrath and indignation against the sin of his people and against the people around them and subsequently, as we looked at on Palm Sunday in chapter 9 of Amos, hope and an offer of salvation equally across that playing field. And so Amos goes from the kingdom of Judah to preach to the, the northern kingdom and deliver an important message. Now, what's going on at this time is, is really important for us to understand. We've got the southern kingdom with Uzziah as its king and the northern kingdom with Jeroboam II as his king. These kingdoms are divided. Jerusalem, of course, pertains to the southern kingdom. And we, we might make the mistake of thinking that the, the Davidic line goes with Judah and that Jerusalem goes with Judah. Therefore, Judah is without sin in this. That's absolutely not the case. These guys are just as much to blame as the northern kingdom. These guys are just as much at fault. 
We also need to understand that this divided kingdom, there's animosity between them, but also they're in a great time of economic prosperity. This is before the Assyrians drag off the northern kingdom with the, the hooks in their noses, right? This is before the southern kingdom is trounced and taken off into Babylonian captivity. Things, reasonably speaking, despite the, the civil war between the northern and the southern kingdoms, are going kind of well. In fact, one of the things that I would point out in terms of the application of what's happening at this time is that there are three verses that kind of give us some indication of what's going on. If you want to write this down in your, your blank page here, there are, what was society like in the time of Amos? The first thing is, there was economic prosperity. There's economic prosperity. If we go to Amos chapter 3, verse 15, we get a little bit of an indication of how God is, is addressing the people at the time. And he says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is a time where the people of Israel have got a vacation home, and they've got their regular home, and they've got these houses made of ivory. There's, there's prosperity here, right? Nobody buys their uh, getaway home in Big Bear during troubled times, right? Like, these are, these are good times for both the northern kingdom as well as for the southern kingdom. We'll take a look at that again in the life of Uzziah. It's also a time of religious syncretism. As we're beginning to unpack the book of Joshua, we see that the people of Israel come in and they displace the Canaanites. They're given very clear orders to, to drive out the Canaanites and not to embrace their way of life. Nonetheless, we know the story. They take on foreign wives they take on pagan gods, and they've mixed this whole thing together in such a way that they think that they're God's chosen people, but they conduct themselves in a way that it's evident that they do not understand or adhere to God's covenant. Amos chapter 5 verse 21 gives us our, our second indication of what the time was like. Religious syncretism is that second point, and Amos 5.21 says, I hate, what a strong word, I hate, I reject I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. God is disgusted with the fact that there's two nations that are both pretending to, to worship him wholeheartedly, right? In the southern kingdom, we've still got the, the glorious temple of Solomon, and the kingdom of Judah, and there's, there's half-hearted worship happening there. And in the northern kingdom, you've got a king that's setting up places like Bethel. No intention to call out Bethel of any other sort, just saying that Bethel was a counterfeit place of worship. There are counterfeit places of worship being set up in the northern kingdom, and they're mixing the other gods in with this mix, and God says, I've had enough of this. So the first thing is there's a time of economic prosperity. The second thing is this is a time of religious syncretism. And the third thing is it is a time of moral degeneracy. Look, if you will, at the second chapter of Amos, verses 7 and 8. This is how God's people are being described in their conduct. It says, Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves beside 
down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. A scathing accusation. One of many that we'll find as we go through this, this book, but we see moral degeneracy. So if you look at those things, you see some economic prosperity, you see religious syncretism, and you see moral degeneracy, it would not be hard for us to arrive at the conclusion that this is pretty applicable today. Amen? <laughs> not hard to find, not hard to spot. So because of these things, God calls Amos to speak out against his people, to deliver this message for the, the purpose of providing warning and an opportunity for repentance. Going back to the first chapter of Amos and looking at Amos's initial statement, this this preface to the book. It says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We'll talk more about Amos's call as we, we unpack this book together, but for today, I wanted us to spend a little bit of time looking at Jeroboam, and Uzziah. These kings are named specifically as, as temporal markers. That's one of the amazing things about the Old Testament is you can kind of piece together the timeline because of who the kings are. We have these amazing books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and we can piece it all together and understand what's happening at the time. The words of Amos in the days of Uzziah and in the days of Jeroboam. The book of Hosea, at the very beginning of our little booklet here, says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Viri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So we now know that Hosea is a contemporary of Amos. We also know, very importantly, that Isaiah was a contemporary. How do we know that? Well, we get to Isaiah chapter 6, this magnificent chapter where we see the vision of Isaiah and it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, right? And he has this vision, and the creatures are, are declaring the, the holiness of God. And Isaiah is, is asked by God, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. That was the year that King Uzziah died. Keep that in mind, because we're going to do a little bit of a look at King Uzziah today as we begin this, this Amos study. But first, a note about Jeroboam the second. If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 14. We'll begin at verse 23. This is what 2 Kings tells us about Jeroboam II. It's important to know that there are several generations between Jeroboam I and Jeroboam II, but it's appropriate that he has this name because they were both rotten to the core. So, here's what the Bible tells us about Jeroboam II. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amity, the prophet who is from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction, the affliction of Israel was bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would, 
blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might and how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles and of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. So our quick cliff note on Jeroboam the second. He was a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed in the traditions of some of his predecessors, like Jeroboam the first. But despite that, God used him as his instrument to, in a way, expand the borders of Israel, to further push out some of those Canaanite peoples, and to bring about some military victory. Interesting. God uses even a wicked king. Now, let's look at Uzziah. He'll be a bit of our focal point this morning, and this is really important for us to keep in mind as we go through the book of Amos. Who are these two kings that reigned during the time of Amos? Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. This is going to be a little bit of a long passage, but please pay attention to the detail. There are a couple of hard names, which I think is probably payback for the passage that Ryan had to read a couple of weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> forgive me on the pronunciation, but let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 26. And all of the people of Judah took Uzziah, who is 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah, after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. I'll pause there for a moment. If you noticed, King Uzziah reigned for 41 years, and now we have King Uzziah, sorry, Jeroboam II reigned for 41 years, and Uzziah here for 52 years. Aside from the queen and Vladimir Putin, no one has reigned for that long in our days, right? <laughs> so these guys have a very long tenure, and they both experience prosperity during their time. Continuing from verse 3, his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. That's probably worth underlining. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and everywhere else in the Philistines, among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurbaal and against the Meunites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah. And his fame spread even to the, for, the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem and at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds, both in Shephelah and in the plain. And he had many farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil." I'm going to stop there for just one moment. We'll continue again in verse 11. But what we'll look at next week in Amos chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is God pronouncing judgment on all of the cities that surround Judah and Israel. And special mention is made to their walls and to their gates and to their fortifications. And what we see here is that Judah wasn't without some of those same amenities. What we see is that during the long tenure of Uzziah, walls were built, cities were built, Farms were established. There's, there's prosperity. But moreover, 
all of the things that the people in that day trusted for their strength were being built up. Verse 11. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and Maesa, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of the fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all of the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. And in Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. What we're seeing described here is the invention of, of catapults, the invention of fortifications, the invention of all of the things that the nations around them would have envied. Things that allowed them to have military victory, right? So we see Jeroboam II expanding the kingdoms, uh, the, the northern kingdom, and we see Uzziah fortifying Jerusalem and the cities of the south and gaining strength. And the warning to us is what happens when we begin to trust in our own strength. Look what happens next. The Bible gives us a little bit more about Uzziah than we get about Jeroboam II. And I think that's important. Verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who are men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord." And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from the first to the last, Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings. For they said, he is a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. What a contrast. From that first passage, we see him inventing catapults and building cities and establishing farms and great flocks and an army of unprecedented size. And then his pride swells up. As the passage says, his fame spread far. It says that the neighboring nations actually paid tribute to him. There are very few times in Israel's history where the neighbors paid taxes to them. On the other hand, there were many times where under the, the hands of the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians and the Persians, that taxes were exacted of them. But this king, things went well for him. And look at his response when things went well. It says that when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. 
And what does he do? He walks into God's house unauthorized and takes the role for himself of the high priest and tries to offer incense. And his own men, in, in desire to protect him and to honor God, confront him. And he becomes so angry that he wanted to kill them. It's uh, interesting, if we look at Amos chapter 1 again, one of the temporal markers that we have there is a little bit enigmatic, but what it says is, he saw, it says, the word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, we don't know that much about this earthquake, and in our day, if you mention an earthquake, some people might think of the, the World Series game, or uh, the Northridge earthquake, or some sort of earthquake that's happened contemporary to our time. No doubt, when this temporal marker was given, it would have had some meaning to the people in that day. And uh, the Jewish historian Josephus writes about an earthquake that was said to have happened at the moment in which Uzziah offered this sacrifice in the temple. The, the demonstration of, of God's anger was such that supernaturally an earthquake took place, damage was done to the temple, and the people of, of Judah, the people of Israel, associated that earthquake with Uzziah's offense against God. We don't know that for certain, so that's a little bit speculative, but I mention that to you because the earthquake is tied in the Jewish mind to the moment in which Uzziah tries to light the incense in the temple. All we know is that there is a pride growing in Uzziah's heart and in Judah's heart that is an offense to God. Who dares enter into to God's holy presence unauthorized? And that takes us to Hebrews chapter 5, which is where we'll see a glimpse of, of Christ through the lens of Amos. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about the, the high priest, and it talks about Christ as the authorized high priest. I'll start at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can de deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And Look at verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. There's Uzziah's crime. He looks at his own accomplishments. He looks at his own strength. He looks at what he's done as the representative figurehead of the, the, the people of Judah. And he thinks it's because of him. Think those military victories were because of his 307,500 soldiers? Absolutely not. We saw Gideon do much worse with much fewer, right? And, and so we see this, this bowing up of pride as Uzziah goes in to do what only the high priest has been authorized to do. And the warning for us is, as New Covenant believers, to think that our accomplishments, to think that our merits, to think that, that our spiritual fruit qualifies us to go boldly before the throne of God. It doesn't. What qualifies us to go boldly before the throne of God? The blood of Christ alone. The blood of Christ alone. Verse 4 again. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this, this Jesus that we celebrated and we celebrate is both our king and our high priest. And what we see in the book of Amos is this failure of human leadership, this failure of Uzziah, this, this misunderstanding, this pride of Uzziah as he walks into the holy place. And he spent the rest of his administration as a leper, cast outside. He had his son rule in his place and completely discredited himself because he failed to recognize where his prosperity, where his success, where his salvation had originated. Let that be a message to us as we, as we carry through this book. Judah looked like the good guy in the story. Uzziah looked like the good guy in the story. But nonetheless, brought to a, a point of, of failure and rejection by God because of his own self-righteousness. Let's go back to Amos chapter 1. We'll finish up here in verse 2 just to give us context for what we'll be looking at next week. We now know that this shepherd, this fig dresser, is going from Judah to the northern kingdom to deliver a message. He's, in a sense, delivering the message to a group of people that are his adversary. There's a civil war going on at the time. And the word that God speaks through Amos is this. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Uh, I'm going to have to do this because um, you, you all know at this point that anyone who, who preaches God's word is not coming up with anything new, right? This is, this is God's word and it's been preached by faithful men for, for thousands of years. But in the preparation of this message, I've been listening a lot to Alistair Begg. And uh, Alistair Begg's series is available online, and his series is called The Lord Roars from Zion. And I can't even say it without uh, doing Alistair Begg. So unfortunately, we were out of Lucky Charms this morning, so that's the best impression I have. Um, But what we do see is that the Lord is roaring from, from Zion, his legitimate place of worship, right? The northern kingdom is setting up all these other places of counterfeit worship, And so it's important that the covenant place, the place where where David was given the mandate to prepare things for Solomon to build the temple is in Zion, in Jerusalem. And so this gives a, a tone of authenticity to the message that Amos is delivering. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from where? From Jerusalem, from the south to the north. And uh, I hope to have some maps prepared for you in the coming weeks. But we see then that Amos speaks out and he says, The the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel Carmel withers. Right? So Carmel would have been way up in uh, what would be northwestern Israel, along the coast of Israel near Haifa. The, the furthest extreme of where national Israel had been expanding. And of course, we know Carmel as the place where Elijah had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And it was a place that was known for beautiful wooded slopes. And because of that draw, 
It had been commonly used by the people of Israel and by the nations surrounding them as a place of idolatry. So it was a place of of beautiful forests, but also a place of idolatry. And what God speaks through Amos is that the the pastures of the shepherds mourn. That must have resonated for Amos himself, a shepherd. And the top of Carmel withers. withers. You might think of a drought or or a forest fire, but what we do know is that the eyes of the, the viewer are brought to that place and the warning is being sounded. And what we'll see as we go through the subsequent verses of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is that Amos will begin his message by addressing all the nations that surround Israel and Judah. And we'll look at those in some, some detail so that we can make some application for our, ourselves. But for today's application please know that this is relevant to our time because it was a time of economic prosperity. It was a time of religious syncretism. It was a time of moral degeneracy. And they needed to be brought back into relationship with God. No less is true of us today. And we also know, and we can make this application through what we see in the life of King Uzziah, that of our own, we have no right, no ability to draw near to the presence of holy God. But because of Christ, who has made our high priest, we can do that. And so that is the lens through which we will view the book of Amos. Let's pray together and uh, prepare our hearts to, to worship this Savior, this high priest that made a way for us. Father in heaven, we come before you grateful as we we still bask in the in the radiance of what is Resurrection Sunday. We thank you, Lord God, that we are in, on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, and, and what the people misunderstood and, and still anticipated in the day of Amos has been made a reality to us. Your covenants, Lord God, are, are brought to a, a new reality because of the new covenant, because of the blood of your son Jesus. We thank you that, that we have the opportunity to to live at at this time in redemptive history, that we have an opportunity to be here in this place understanding the eternality of your word and the unchanging nature of the God that we worship. God, we pray this morning that we would be ever mindful that our accomplishments, our prosperity, our spiritual fruit, none of this comes from our hands, but our strength is in you alone. Without your strength and your salvation, God, we would be undone as Isaiah said. And so, God, we, we just pray that you would make us a group of people, a group of um, broken people who are mindful of our dependence on you. We pray that that would be true of our, famil- our families individually and our church collectively, Lord God, that we would be dependent on you in, in everything. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.